Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It is my pleasure to welcome back Mr. Jack Nicholas. Welcome back, Jack. Thank you very much. Happy to do this. So, Jack, for those that may not be familiar with you, you know, you started off your career as a naval officer, moving into a senior service engineer and a reserve naval officer. In addition to that, you spent quite a bit of time over the years founding companies, authoring books, and really helping drive forward the maintenance and reliability program, predictive maintenance, and really all those different aspects to deliver a holistic maintenance program. Although very brief, is there anything that I missed that you would like to fill in? Well, for over 60 years, I've been in this business. As I, you mentioned, I started as a junior officer uh, at that time on a U.S. Navy destroyer. I was assigned to the engineering department, uh, which really shaped the rest of my naval career and uh, civilian career after that. I moved up after some training ashore to be the chief engineer of the ship uh, about two years later. So I became deeply immersed in maintenance and, by extension, reliability of aging, hard-run machinery, and all the auxiliary systems that make a World War II design built and operated ship livable and mission-capable. At the time, for ships of that age, it was about 15 years old in a projected 25-year operating life, procedures were expected to be prepared by the crew, a nearly impossible task given that we had only one typewriter in engineering and one mimeograph duplicating machine on board, which was shared with other departments. The entrance into the Navy nuclear propulsion program after 38 months on board the destroyer increased my knowledge of maintenance. That program under Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was dubbed the father of the nuclear Navy, had the resources to sustain reliability, particularly in submarine nuclear propulsion systems. I served on three submarines over a period of seven years before being assigned ashore to teach tactics to commanding officers in their torpedo attack teams at the submarine school in New London, Connecticut. While at the sub-school, I was recruited by one of the commanding officers I taught to become a civil servant engineer in a newly formed submarine maintenance monitoring and support program. He was organizing in, in his new ashore assignment uh, in a post-command uh, operation. Uh, he had been selected as a commanding officer, uh, formerly of a nuclear submarine, in order to organize that program. It literally changed the culture of the Navy as it relates to adopting and implementing condition monitoring and condition-based repairs to replace time-directed preventive maintenance tasking. I'll describe a little bit about that in a, uh, in a little bit, but for over 200 years, the Navy relied upon periodic uh, shipyard overhauls during the ship's life cycle. Largely, we tear into machinery and fix anything found to be worn or broken. Uh, the ultimate goal of the SIMS program 
was to safely extend times between shipyard overhauls and eliminate some of them so that they could be more available for the operations during their normal or extended life cycles, which we were able to do. We extended some up to 50% beyond their nominal 25-year life. This was all driven by economics because we were seeing reduced budgets at the end of the Vietnamese War, and we knew would be unable to sustain the old ways of maintenance. Uh, because the nuclear submarine fleet was growing fairly rapidly and the number of ships couldn't uh, even be accommodated by the shipyards we had at the time. For 30 years, for 32 years after that, uh, starting about 1988, I've been involved with consulting in many different countries and learning, writing, and presenting on maintenance and reliability subjects in many different venues. I learned something from every client I served and have documented this in my articles, professional papers, and books. All right. Excellent. So one interesting thing you mentioned there, Jack, that I was not aware of was the fact that the destroyer crews were responsible for developing their own procedures. And it's almost like what we see now where individual plants or departments have to develop their own procedures for maintenance tasks, maintenance activities, those types of things. Um, and we know there's there's complications with that, right? You said it was the impossible task almost, and uh, sometimes it feels like that within departments. Well, first of all, we didn't have the skills. Uh, even learning how to type was a problem for many of the people in the engineering department. Uh, they knew what to do, uh, and they'd been trained well in the schools because the equipment was fairly simple and the systems were pretty straightforward. You could learn them in a matter of weeks or months. Uh, and maintain them pretty well, as uh, we proved, uh, because we never missed a commitment uh, over three years I was on board. And it was because of the skills of the enlisted personnel in my engineering department that we were able to do so. So it was good uh, from that standpoint, but bad if you wanted to have uh, procedures prepared by those uh, troops. In fact, I remember to this day, uh, the uh, member of the Board of Inspection and Survey who periodically looks at ships to determine how, in good, what their material condition was, uh, really took us to the task for having not prepared all these procedures, which he expected to see. And we just didn't have them. And we didn't fail the inspection. Nobody fails unless your material condition is bad. But it was a disappointment to them. And, but I pointed out to them that it was very difficult to make up these procedures and even to keep them current as things changed. But the main uh, effort that I learned from uh, was the 3M system that was later instituted in the Navy. And I'll talk about that in a minute. All right, perfect. So what I wanted to talk to, to talk to you today about was the subsafe program and how that relates to procedure-based maintenance because I hear a lot about procedure-based maintenance within organizations, but they really struggle to get it off the ground and get it moving. So procedure-based maintenance, if I remember correctly, was a result of the subsafe program. So if, if you can take us back, what is the subsafe program? Well, the long-term is submarine safety program. It was instituted as a direct result 
of the loss of the USS Thresher, a nuclear-powered submarine, in a disaster that claimed 129 lives and that occurred on the 10th of April, 1963. This was a new and the most modern nuclear submarine in the fleet at the time. It had just finished a post-commissioning and shakedown shipyard period at Sea Bay Island between Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Kittery, Maine. Uh, I was in submarine school at the time, and I can tell you that the event had a profound effect on the Navy in general and the submarine force in particular. Later that year, I was assigned to the oldest nuclear submarine for duty, uh, the USS Nautilus. So I operated on that ship for about eight months before we drove our ship into that same shipyard from which the Thresher had been lost just less than a year before. So we did it with some degree of trepidation. Now, we were supposed to be there for 14 months, uh, and this was at the 10-year point of the projected 25-year operational life of Nautilus. But because of the Thresher loss, the Navy was still designing modifications to nuclear submarines to try to prevent further losses due to the probable causes that they suspected at the time that were identified by the Board of Investigation into the disaster. In the course of our stay, some specific modifications were mandated for Nautilus and many more for the rest of the nuclear fleet. Uh, that caused our stay in the shipyard to be extended to 27 months while the modifications were made. One of my assignments on Nautilus given to me by the commanding officer after arrival at the yard was to study the Board of Investigation report, which was classified top secret at the time, and determine what was mandated for our ship and determine whether it was adequate, and to revise our operating and maintenance procedures to accommodate to change systems and the findings of the board as well as they could figure it out at that time. I took that assignment very seriously for a variety of reasons not the least of which was that four Nautilus shipmates had been lost on Thresher, and we didn't want to suffer the same fate. From a maintenance standpoint, the centerpiece of the sub-save program continues to be the requirement that detailed written procedures and checklists be developed and followed to the letter by all personnel engaged in maintenance specified for components uh, all, for all systems that affect submarine safety. Thereafter, no additional U.S. Navy submarines have ever come close to being lost due to any kind of maintenance problem involving the systems included in the sub-safe program. Uh, the Navy has proven that it lowered the odds that a failure of the nature that caused the loss of, of the thresher would recur. In addition, it increased the equipment reliability and performance of the entire fleet. Uh, in, 19, in 2013, 50 years after the loss of the Thresher, the Subsafe program received the Emerging Center of Excellence Award. The award recognizes the fact that no other program in the past 50 years has been more effective on the safety of U.S. Navy submarine force than the Subsafe program, which codified submarine design and safety certification requirements and processes while providing a framework for certifying critical systems for submerged operations. Um, and that's the uh, ultimate thing. We now have gone uh, 
over 57 years without the loss of a submarine due to that cause. Now, we did lose the USS Scorpion in 1967, but the cause of that loss wasn't related to any of these systems. We believe that a torpedo, a faulty torpedo, which was being disarmed after the ship had been on a special operation surveilling a Soviet fleet operation near the Azores, uh, failed, uh, its battery exploded, and that caused the loss of the ship. So it wasn't the uh, sub-safe program, which hadn't been implemented on that ship anyway, but uh, a totally different system, a weapons system, that we believe caused the loss of the Thresher, which again was very, very meaningful to me. The commanding officer of the Thresher had been my uh, state roommate and mentor during my period early in the time on Nautilus. He helped me qualify the submarines and prepared me to qualify for command of submarines, which I did before I left the ship. So he, along with three or four other shipmates from Nautilus had been lost. He'd taken them from Nautilus to the Scorpion. And uh, of course, we were very deeply involved with the family after the loss of the Scorpion. So uh, I've been pretty close to uh, these disasters over the years. And that's cemented in my mind the need for a very careful preparation of procedures, checklists, and all the supporting documentation that goes along with that. So was that subsafe program the starting point for procedure-based maintenance or the formalization of it, if actually, you will? The, uh, the, actually, the Navy had uh, started to use procedures in what was called the Maintenance and Material Management System, or 3M system. They started this in 1950s, and it had two main parts. Uh, the first, and to me, the most important part was the planned maintenance system, which provided detailed, time-directed preventive maintenance procedures in the form of maintenance requirements cards. Uh, these cards uh, were largely written by civilian contractors who employed ex-Navy technicians with experience on the systems that they were supporting. They were then printed and distributed to the fleet units um, and kept up to date as changes occurred to the systems through modification or recommendations for improvement coming from the fleet. Uh, older ships, such as the destroyer I served on and the Nautilus, had yet to receive any MRCs. We just weren't high on the priority list. Uh, so my commanding officer on Nautilus arranged to have me copy all the maintenance requirements cards from one of the newer subs in our squadron that had received the MRCs and then ship check them and modify them to suit our needs on Nautilus. That really gave me an education on preventive maintenance and some of its limitations. The other part of the 3M system was called the maintenance data collection system, which required shipboard personnel to document repairs on the ship during the operations and report them to a central site for aggregation. It was actually in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles from where I'm sitting now. Uh, and those data were made available to various Navy ship support activities for analysis. We actually used a lot of those data in the SIMS program uh, to determine sort of the history of failures on the systems that we had. Uh, we actually adopted the uh, approach that was uh, ultimately called the reliability-centered maintenance approach. Uh, at that time, we call it the 
maintenance study group approach, which MSG was the short title of the group that uh, helped uh, develop uh, and was uh, very well described in the book called Reliability Center and Maintenance that was authored by Nolan and Heap of United Airlines and published by the Department of Defense. Uh, and that, that later became the basis for maintenance in all the services, those principles that were outlined in the RCM book. Uh, and in fact, a couple of years after the book came out, we were uh, interrogated by the Defense Department. Uh, the question they asked was, why haven't you adopted this? And we pointed out that we started adopting it well before the book came out and had been uh, very successful with it. And uh, we welcomed them to come over and take a look and see what we had done. And that uh, ended the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> So procedures actually started with well before the subsafe program. It wasn't anything new, but it, for the shipyard, shipyards, and the tenders that supported the submarines, the uh, repair ships that are called tenders, uh, it was a revelation. It was new, and uh, they had to adopt those uh, practices using those procedures and following them to the letter. And in the case of the subsafe program procedures, they were carefully checked off step by step. And you took special precautions, particularly when you were changing shifts to ensure that everybody knew what went before and what was still needed to be done to ensure a safe outcome would be the result of any maintenance on those systems. So procedures didn't come from subsafe they came at, they were actually beforehand but why was there an emphasis on procedures from the subsafe program well there are many benefits uh, both to the organization and to the individuals within it and even from outside supporting activities for having not only the procedures but the supporting policies processes and plans for carrying out these procedures if you have a full set of current policies, procedures, and plans, then the procedures represents the accumulated tribal knowledge of all the past and present employees who contribute to their content. It represents an invaluable legacy to the organization and the former co-workers left behind um, by those who are retired or moved on to other jobs. Uh, the legacy assures continuity of operations and sustaining functions. Uh, the accumulated knowledge is a set uh, in a set of procedures permits an organization to maintain tighter control of its evolutions and therefore protecting its reputation, uh, its profitability, if that's a factor, and other uh, elements of its reputation. When used and followed, Procedures can be the foundation that supports an employee, regardless of today's cares and concerns. Not everybody comes to the job in the same condition every day, and you want to have something to rely upon that's going to get you a satisfactory result, even though you're having a bad day. So they provide a measure of job security and confidence in what is expected, and a shield that protects from malicious or arbitrary actions of supervisors taken out on individuals for whatever reasons. If you're doing your job effectively in accordance with the established current procedures, there's little for anyone to complain about legitimately. 
other personnel may make use of procedures developed by an organization, and they include contract workers brought into the site under outsourcing arrangements. Uh, these arrangements provide high skilled uh, administrative or other crafts personnel assigned uh, to perform specific tasks planned or scheduled by the client, usually a ship's commanding officer or, or uh, uh, senior uh, organization. But they have to be executed by the contractor teams or teams made up of contractor and in-house personnel, and you need to have something that's very stable. So the contractor could estimate what it's going to cost them to perform the work, uh, and those who have to support it can provide the right personnel to ensure that it get done, gets done properly. Uh, I'll describe other uses for detailed procedures later in this podcast. Excellent. So with these procedures in place, I really like how you put that, the accumulated knowledge of past and present employees. Um, how do they really help drive improved reliability? Well, the reasons for developing detailed procedures were pretty compelling. Uh, military personnel rotate frequently from station to station. Their duties change as they are promoted as frequently as six times in the first eight years of in some specialties. Uh, word of mouth and on-the-job training and intuition were simply too unrealistic to meet safety and consistency in maintenance practices. Ships rely on a variety of maintenance support activities, such as naval and commercial shipyards, Navy shore-based intermediate maintenance activities, repair ships, as I mentioned, called tenders, and shipyard original equipment manufacturer representatives. Many personnel in these organizations have little or no knowledge of the past history or reasons for assisting on doing maintenance the same way every time in order to assure continued reliability of systems in service for maybe 35 to 42 years of life of a typical nuclear submarine in today's fleets. In fact, many of you may have two or three people retired in that period of time who previously had knowledge, but the new personnel who come on board have no background in that. So having procedures and supporting documents available makes their job of estimating costs and repairs and carrying them out on time and within budget much more reliable also. There are four comparable studies on failures using data collected over a period of years before publication of analysis results prove this point conclusively, in my opinion. Uh, the four studies from which failure profiles and statistics were taken include the United Airlines study. This is the one that resulted in a report written by Nolan and Heap called Reliability Center Maintenance. And then uh, that was done on pre-jumbo jet commercial airlines, airliners. About the same time, the Broberg study, uh, believed done under sponsorship of the European Airline Maintenance Study Group, was, which was reported in 1973. The uh, earlier report came out in 78. Um, I'm sorry, it was reported in 1983. Uh, the... Uh, it cited a failure diagnosis and performance monitoring, and uh, it's in volume 11 in, uh, of a series of books edited and published by Marcel Decker. Uh, the MSP study, uh, the long title was Age Reliability Analysis Prototype uh, Study, was done by American Management Systems, and the fellow that oversaw that was the boss of Nolan and Heap of RCM book fame. 
So you had continuity and you had the same approach on both that study as well as the two studies on commercial airliners before that. But this was on Navy surface warships. Um, it was reported in 1993 using mostly 1980s data from the CM pro, uh, 3M program that I mentioned before. And then the last one and most recent is the SubMEP study. It was reported in 2001 using data largely from the 1990s and summarized in a paper dated uh, in 2001. It's entitled U.S. Navy Analysis of Submarine Maintenance Data and Development of Age and Reliability Profiles. This was done by Tim Allen, a reliability analyst leader at Submarine Maintenance and Engineering Planning and Procurement, or SubMEP activity which is a activity, uh, field activity of the Naval Sea Systems Command at the shipyard mentioned uh, above at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So each study showed failure profiles and percentages of failures for systems. Now, in the, in the 1960s and early 70s, uh, the dominant profile was called the infant failure profile. It shows about 67% of all failures in pre-jumbo jet commercial aircraft in the 1960s and 70s were infant failures. The second study done by the Navy surface on the Navy surface warship in the 1980s, which by that time were all maintained under the PMSPM program that I mentioned before, used the maintenance requirements cards. And that study <coughs> showed that Infant failures amounted to about 29% of all failures, a radical reduction from the 67% that was done in commercial airliners. Now, those errors in commercial airliners were, con were actually uh, the result of licensed mechanics, FAA licensed mechanics, who then didn't have adequate procedures to follow to be consistent in the repairs, whereas the surface warship people who had adopted these MRCs did have more detailed procedures that have been evolving over time, and they were better at doing that. Now, the interesting thing is that the latest study done on uh, Los Angeles-class submarines, and for those of you who are familiar with it, uh, the USS Dallas SSN 700, uh, which was featured in the Hunt for Red October uh, movie and book, was a Los Angeles class submarine. So all the failures associated with that came from that class of which we was a very large class and had a lot of data. Uh, and its percentage of infant failures is only 6%. Now, that's a reduction of order of magnitude. That's 10 times lower than you had from the airliners 20, 30 years before. So, uh, this really is very interesting uh, in that uh, it compares favorably uh, to your, your article, James, uh, in 2017 in Reliable Plant Magazine that uh, quotes Swain and Gutman's assertion that the use of procedures reduces human error to 5%, 5 6% right on, a, on the same uh, area. And then use of checklists further reduces the psychological errors, that is from slips and lapses to 1%. That's what we're trying to achieve with the subsafe program, or even better than that, we want 0%, of course. So uh, all these things tend to line up 
And as a result of preparing for this podcast, I learned these facts. I've had your article in my digital files for uh, ever since you published it. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com. Excellent. So what we're really trying to do with this is remove that human error from that infant mortality curve, correct? Try and take it down to that five, six, yes. down even further if we can to, you know, 1% or less. Now, procedures weren't the only thing to come out of the SubSafe program. There was stuff around design. There was obviously some stuff for training. Now, what is the role of training with procedure-based maintenance? Because there's a perception out there that if I give you a procedure, I don't have to train you. I'm guessing that's not the case. It's not entirely true. Uh, It depends upon the skill level and experience of the personnel who are actually going to carry out the policies, process, plans, and procedures. Uh, And in some cases... Uh, the work instructions that are derived from or supplementing them. Uh, now, what this does, if you have that documentation, is substantially reduce the cost and time of training on specific steps uh, of any of the more complex tasks which are increasingly needed today because our systems are getting more complex for a variety of reasons. So properly prepared procedures are invaluable tools for training personnel new to a particular job, whether or not they have experience with the asset being maintained. While the content may not answer all the questions an individual may have concerning task or function addressed by a specific procedure, it should trigger thoughts that can lead a worker to formulate questions and then when answered will eliminate uncertainty and increase confidence in their ability to perform successfully, which everybody wants to do when they do a job. Of course, the procedure users must meet craft skill qualification requirements specified in the procedure before being expected to perform it after proper training. So instructors using thoroughly prepared procedures as a training aid uh, make use of the most efficient tools for training personnel new to a task when a student student needs to know uh, what the student needs to know to achieve success on the job. Content of a particular procedure may bring back to experienced users and instructors personal memories of why specific state steps, warnings, cautions, or explanatory notes contained in the procedure were included, uh, particularly when added because of actual traumatic event, events, such as injury to themselves or their coworkers, or that result in infant failures, uh, if not followed exactly, uh, that can cause their equipment to be shut down, their plant to be shut down, and in some cases lost completely. Yes, absolutely. So we have our tech technicians, our craftspeople, they have to have a foundational knowledge within their trade, within their skill. And then we use procedures to supplement that training to make get them up to speed on those assets. Um, so we have to do we have to train our staff on the actual procedures themselves? Well, they must be at least briefed if experienced with the asset in advance and have the proper skill set, of course, let's say electrician grade three or mechanic level two, depending upon how you define what those uh, craft skills need to be 
to uh, be uh, identified at that level and paid at that level. Um, so they must also know what the policy and process is for non-deviation from a written procedure and what to do if they perceive an impediment to carrying out any steps of the procedure. For example, if they come up against a safety problem, you know, they're authorized to stop work. If your policy requires and specifies that, they can do it without fault. That is, without any repercussions from anybody because they're authorized to do it in accordance with the policy. So the technician must adhere to proper procedures and process to, um, for things like shift changes, where a job isn't completed and must be turned over uh, to their reliefs with all the knowledge necessary to ensure safety throughout and through a continuity. So with procedure-based maintenance delivering so many results in commercial aviation, the military, why is it that it hasn't taken hold in private sectors then? Well, in fact, in some elements of the private sector, they have adopted procedure-based maintenance, most notably the commercial nuclear power generation industry. And some petrochemical manufacturing organizations have become procedure-based. I've had some clients in other countries uh, do so also, most notably Osselier Middle to Fasco in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, where I spent about 10 years off and on, about one week a month, uh, helping them develop um, their predictive maintenance program, mentoring uh, the fellow who's now my co-author on four books and uh, doing other things that were in support of their uh, program that caused them to be named the most sustained, uh, one of the most sustainable uh, steel um, production operations in the world. Uh, and they continue to have that status, uh, even though they've been acquired by two different organizations in the meantime. Uh, generally, whenever I encounter someone in charge of maintenance organizations with a U.S. military background, not just Navy nukes, I find at least the beginnings, if not a full-fledged commitment of that organization becoming a procedure-based organization because they believe in it. They've learned it, whether you're in the Air Force uh, or in the Navy. Now, the Air Force uh, goes to much further detail. Um, one of my grandsons is an FAA licensed mechanic, and for a few years, uh, he worked as a contractor uh, on uh, turbojet uh, planes. There were 22 passenger aircraft that deliver special forces around the world. He was based in Africa for a couple of years. And uh, he was the civilian mechanic and the only one on those aircraft that flew. He, when I asked him if he kept a tally of how many countries he'd been in, he said, I've been in 155 countries overnight and more when we had only 20 minutes allowed on the ground before we had to take off and get out of there. So <laughs> I said, well, why doesn't the, the Air Force put their own mechanics on there? The planes are flown by U.S. Navy or U.S. Air Force pilots. He said, they're so specialized that it would take six of them to do what I do. Hmm. And we didn't have that num number of seats available for them to fly with those, those aircraft. So they had to go to contractors who had FAA licensed mechanics who had the skills to do 
what six Air Force mechanics would ordinarily do because they're so specialized. So it can go uh, a long way, but I really haven't lost hope because if I were a civilian person looking for a replacement uh, and looking to hire somebody who really understood that, I'd hire veterans uh, with a procedure-based maintenance experience and mindset because uh, regardless of what where they come from, whether they're Army, Air Force, and now Space Force, or Navy, uh, Coast Guard, and so forth, they would have the skills necessary to be able to implement a procedure-based maintenance program. Uh, but the vast majority of organizations I've, haven't gotten the message yet on what this approach can do for them. Uh, again, I haven't lost hope yet because among other aspects of an adaptation of the asset management uh, standard ISO 55000, digitalization and industrial 4.0 best practices uh, is offering what's now called prescriptive maintenance. Um, in addition, uh, the increasing availability of vi uh, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and connectivity via the internet uh, to original equipment manufacturer and cloud-based libraries of instructional videos and reference materials makes it possible to instruct and indoctrinate technicians on best practices and details on how to perform maintenance. So this is a growing resource that can be used to keep people up to speed uh, and provide them with procedures, which they no longer have to write. They can learn from using virtual reality tools uh, to learn how to do maintenance on very complex machines like aircraft engines and so forth. Yes, absolutely. Leveraging that technology is definitely going to help. Um, it's going to make some of these procedures easier to, to pull together, I believe. Now, for those that are looking to implement procedure-based maintenance, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? Well, with the increasing complexity of systems, large turnover of personnel needed to maintain them. And the fact that people are fallible and can't memorize everything they may be exposed to, as best practices and the consequences of failures as they affect safety in plants and the environment outside of the plant in the community and the planet. Think Deepwater Horizon and Bhopal chemical plant disaster. You must adopt procedure-based maintenance that can keep you and your organization from suffering from what those companies went through, which is a long-term set of pains uh, the extremely low cost today of developing effective processes and procedures in-house with word processing and image insertion into documents, even with contractor support or by adopting elements of Industry 4.0 and all the other things I just mentioned, uh, will help your organization stay competitive and even more profitable than if you continue to rely upon skill or craft with little or no procedures. And don't capture tribal knowledge of your experience in about to retire older maintenance technicians and technical supervisors. I've seen some studies that show that a very high percentage of technicians is over 55 years old. Well, they're gonna be retiring. The question is, how do you get the information out of their heads and onto some form of a procedure, whether it's digital or on paper, in order to teach and maintain reliability uh, using the personnel who are going to replace them. 
Yep. I think that is one of the challenges there. Now, is that if you had to pick one thing that makes the biggest difference in being successful with procedure-based maintenance, is it getting that knowledge out of their heads? Is it getting people to follow the procedures? Cause I know that can be a challenge elsewhere. What's the biggest thing that makes, what's the thing that makes the biggest difference? Well, you hit on it. Um, you can only create a procedure-based maintenance culture by ensuring that you have both an effective compliance policy and a feedback and follow-up process that really works, a living pro- process that really works and is in place. Now, what I mean by compliance policy is one that both maintenance and operations procedure, uh, for the, both of those, there is a strict adherence to what is written and a no-fault, no-penalty approach to ensuring that when there is an impediment to carrying out a procedure that appears to be unsafe or not possible, work will stop until the issue is resolved. Now, if you put yourself on a schedule, it's a safety issue, you should be able to resolve that in less than 24 hours. If it's a non-safety issue and is a matter of judgment and maybe require a little bit more research, you should be able to resolve it within a month, 22 working days. Now, what I mean by uh, living feedback and follow-up process is whenever a worker finds a fault with a procedure or creates and recommends a better way of performing the, the tasks, uh, that there is a way for the worker to easily communicate the problem or recommendation to personnel who will act upon it within those specified timelines that I just mentioned. If you don't have such a process or don't effectively implement it, you cannot be successful in trying to adopt a procedure-based approach because no one will believe you're serious about it and they'll work around it. Uh, people have a remarkable way of figuring out how to do what they need to do to get the job done regardless of whatever you've written and whatever regardless of what your policies are so um, among other things uh, a successful feedback and follow-up process uh, provides a response to anybody who submits a recommendation or stops work for a safety reason to get it resolved uh, what this means is that you have to have either a reward of some sort, it may even be something as simple as a memo to their personnel file, uh, or some monetary award if it really pays off financially for the organization. But uh, even if the recommendation isn't accepted, there should at least be some form of thank you uh, and a pat on the back, uh, perhaps a positive uh, notation in their personnel file or something of that nature. That way people realize that they're being paid attention to. And if they are, then they'll live with the program and make it successful. All right, excellent. So some words of wisdom there for getting procedure-based maintenance in place. Now, what is the one action you want our listeners to take away from the conversation we've had today? Where Do you want them to go learn something? Do you want them to go try something? What do you want them to do? Well, just don't take my word for it. Uh, the value of procedure-based maintenance um, is real. Uh, you just should study the literature of others like Ricky Smith, Drew Troyer, and you, James, uh, that you, you've written articles on that subject. I think uh, I remember one from a lubrication magazine also, uh, besides the Reliable Plant magazine that I just uh, mentioned before. Um, a book titled Managing Maintenance Error by Reason and Hobbs 
provides a practical guide on how to avoid the common problems uh, of personnel error, if you will, in many ways, besides the use of procedures and checklists. Google those names for links uh, to their work on this subject and study it because it's pretty convincing. All right. Excellent. I have not heard of that book, so I'm definitely going to have to go look that one up after this. And I'll put links in the show notes. so Our listeners can just click on the links and it'll take it right, take them right to it. Uh, so, Jack, where can people find out more about you, your books, resources that you've written, all those great things? Where can they find out more? Well, I have extensive personal information on LinkedIn. All books I've authored or co-authored that are still in print are published uh, by reliabilityweb.com and sold through their MRO Zone bookstore, and they also can be purchased through Amazon.com. My co-author for four of those books on motor electrical predictive maintenance and testing, Jeff Jarlovic from Hamilton, Ontario, uh, and I are preparing for a week-long online training course uh, on that material of that subject. Uh, this series of books contains over 500 pages of text and 900 PowerPoint slides. Many of them are photographs of motors in various uh, states of disrepair and damage. We think it will be scheduled for the first time to be conducted in April 2021 online uh, and it's for a full week. Right now, uh, we're preparing an exam so that those certified reliability leaders who pass can qualify for a badge in asset condition monitoring that can be added to their CRL resume. With completion of a project afterwards, they can earn an orange belt under Reliability Web's Black Belt program. Uh, You get uh, five or more uh, belts, uh, you get a black belt. And you can add that to the list of uh, short uh, abbreviations you put after your name, like CRL, BB means CRL black belt. So another feature of this course will be over an hour's video of a highly instructive narrated tour of what I consider to be the world's most advanced motor repair facility. And demonstration of some shop testing in three different plants um, in two different countries and an interview of the facility manager of that outstanding uh, organization that I mentioned. Uh, it's very instructive. If you listen, or go through the narrative, go through the tour, and listen to what that manager has to say, uh, you can look at any repair shop that you're dependent upon and provide them with recommendations on how to improve their service. I guarantee it. It's, there's so much more to learn uh, that you can't learn anywhere else but in the shop uh, that it would be worthwhile uh, just listening to that video. And so far as uh, my personal resources, one of the books still in print that I've authored is titled Secrets of Success with Procedures. Uh, it's available from the MRO Zone bookstore or from Amazon.com, and the price is under $40. And uh, it provides you with uh, some of the material that I've mentioned in this podcast but a great deal more and a great deal more details. Also, it gives you some uh, excellent uh, examples of what I consider to be some of the better procedures that have been written in the past, both in military and civilian world. And uh, you'd be well advised to uh, obtain that book. All right. Well, 
Jack, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about subsafe procedure-based maintenance, the intricacies of it, some of the stuff we got to be aware with it, getting people on board, making sure we follow up with uh, recommendations, those sorts of things. I definitely walked away more knowledgeable about procedure-based maintenance after this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. It's an honor to do it, and I appreciate it. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.